This winter, join the Washington Post in its fight against hunger, homelessness, and poverty with a contribution to Post Helping Hand. To learn more and donate, visit posthelpinghand.com. The House impeachment inquiry moves this week from the House Intelligence Committee, led by Chairman Adam Schiff, to the House Judiciary Committee, led by Chairman Jerry Nadler. The Democrats are continuing on a speedy timeline for this inquiry that would set a full House vote on articles of impeachment for just before the House breaks for the end of December holidays. That shift means there's a few key moments to pay attention to this week. The House Intelligence Committee released its report Tuesday on findings from the impeachment inquiry. The report says President Trump placed his political interests above national interests in his conduct toward Ukraine, and that Trump, quote, engaged in an unprecedented campaign of obstruction of this impeachment inquiry, end quote. On Tuesday night, the Intelligence Committee is scheduled to vote on sending that report to the Judiciary Committee. This vote will allow Judiciary to consider articles of impeachment based on that document. On Wednesday, hearings in the House Judiciary Committee will begin. There, four constitutional scholars, three chosen by Democrats and one chosen by Republicans, are expected to testify on the standards for impeachment and what constitutes an impeachable offense. But... Some potentially notable people will not be in attendance Wednesday. White House counsel Pat Zipalone told the House Judiciary Committee in a five-page letter that Trump and his lawyers would not be part of the hearing. So have we seen anything like this in history, a president's legal team absent from impeachment proceedings into the president's actions? How have past presidents used their lawyers in the impeachment process, and how might Trump's approach be different? That's right. We're asking, can Trump and his lawyers sit out of the impeachment proceedings? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. Our producer, Carol, and I headed to the halls of the Capitol to find senior congressional correspondent Paul Kane. This isn't his first time covering a presidential impeachment process, so we knew he'd have some answers. I started by asking him to remind us where the White House has stood on the inquiry up to this point. In the Intelligence Committee, the White House basically refused to cooperate and refused to have any of the agencies turn over documents and the most senior of all witnesses. There were more mid-level career-type officials who did testify because they wouldn't be as as legally protected by a presidential order to not cooperate. Instead, so those officials, the the George Kents and Bill Taylors, Marie Ivanoviches, they got a congressional subpoena and felt obliged to testify. So they they did go and testify first behind closed doors and then in public for the Intel Committee. But otherwise, the White House, the very top officials at the State Department, Energy Department, OMB, and in the other West Wing spots, such as Acting Chief of Staff Mulvaney, they all refused to cooperate. And there were no lawyers present for the White House during any of these depositions. They relied on the House Republicans, their staff, and their members to be doing all of the questioning. We now move into this Judiciary Committee phase, and this is the more traditional impeachment inquiry phase where normally they would get to participate. 
Can you explain a little bit how that process works now that we're in the judiciary phase? Does the the committee reach out directly to the White House and ask them, make them an offer to, to come on by? How does it work? Yeah, it's kind of like a, both a public and private negotiation. I'm sure there were some back channel talks about letting them know when they were moving into the more public phase at the Judiciary Committee. And then there was a formal letter sent by Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler to the White House letting them know that they would have this first hearing on Wednesday and that there would be more hearings to follow. And they essentially gave them a deadline at the end of this week to notify would they be participating? Would the White House legal team be participating? Would some outside personal lawyers of President Trump's, would they be participating? So there was just sort of a a gentle back and forth. And by uh, Sunday night, the White House counsel's office responded with a, you know, uh, hell no for now type of response, <laughs> blasting the process, but saying that they might, might someday actually participate. So what reasons did they give in that letter from Sunday night about why they're specifically not participating on Wednesday? Basically, they said they still don't believe that the process is fair to them, that they believe that past impeachment inquiries, 1974 and 1998 before House Judiciary, that those had a more open process and there were more fact-based witnesses that were being called in those inquiries into Presidents Nixon and Clinton. And that as if all that their judiciary was going to do was call some constitutional scholars, and they announced those four constitutional scholars on Monday, they felt like that wasn't a real hearing, and therefore they decided that the process was tilted against them, and they still didn't have a full assurance of what role that the legal team from the White House would have. So they said, no, we're not going to be there. But keep calling, letting us know what else is going to happen. Now, as you said, Wednesday, it's four constitutional scholars who will be mm-hmm. testifying. It seems to me like the Trump administration might want to have a stake in these scholars kind of establishing exactly what constitutes an impeachable offense. That seems like something that, from my perspective, Trump's lawyers would want to influence a consensus around. Yeah. You know, he will have there will be a team of Republicans I think there's 16 or 17 Republicans on the Judiciary Committee led by Doug Collins of Georgia, Jim Jordan of Ohio, who, you know, the former wrestler who Trump just loves his style of clashing with witnesses. And not wearing a jacket. And not wearing the jacket, of course. (laughs) He will – he'll have that in those questioners. But he's not going to have his own team who would normally be afforded an opportunity to also ask questions. And I think that is going to look more like a traditional hearing that might be a bit of a circus show. So maybe that's what the Republican goal is. But if his own lawyers were also there, I think it would add a a lot of – time to the negative side of the the questioning and they would be able to try to chip away at the democratic case in a more coherent legal fashion. That's what Trump's lawyers might potentially be able to do were they to come on Wednesday, yeah. but they're not going to. No. Okay. So 
I know we've seen only a few presidential impeachments in history, but in that sample size, is it unusual for a president's lawyers not to be present in proceedings that are suggesting impeachable offenses by the president? It sort of seems like that's when you need your lawyers the most, perhaps. Uh, Yes. You know, 1974 and 1998 are the examples. And in those cases, now, each of them was very different. Every, all three of these are very distinct and different. But and the Judiciary Committee process was much longer in each of uh, the other two. But their lawyers did get to do things, did get to push witnesses, did get to present their own witnesses by participating. In July 11th, 1974, President Nixon's lawyer was able to cross-examine John Dean, who has you know, the star witness in a lot of ways for the Democrats against Nixon deems the former White House counsel who essentially flipped against Nixon and was testifying about various abuses of power and that he personally witnessed. And that was a climactic moment where the White House lawyers got to question Dean. The New York Times called it a real bloodletting in their story of the day that day. One of the Democrats on the committee admitted that that Nixon's lawyer was, quote, a good defense lawyer. Mm -hmm. In 1998, Ken Starr had spent several years investigating Bill Clinton, and it eventually morphed into the lying about an affair and trying to cover up an affair with a White House intern. And David Kendall was a really acclaimed lawyer in Washington, was Bill Clinton's personal lawyer, had spent many hours clashing with Ken Starr's team of lawyers, including a future Supreme Court Justice, Brett Kavanaugh. And, but that was all in private. And then at the Judiciary Committee, Ken Starr finally presented his report as independent counsel and and sort of laid out the case and the charges. And it went all day. And then that night, it was David Kendall, Clinton's lawyer, the chance to just uh, one hour of cross-examination public. It was it was electric. I remember I didn't have to cover it day to day back then in D.C., but I remember being in a cab driving across town as you know the cab drivers made sure to have it on, having C-SPAN radio or whatever. Everybody was broadcasting it. And, you know, that's not going to happen now. It will. We we might have some sort of similar presentation by the Intelligence Committee to the Judiciary Committee. I don't think it's going to be Adam Schiff that will present their report, but it might be Daniel Goldman, their their legal counsel, and Republicans will get to ask questions of of him. But you're not going to have the White House lawyer engaging in the way that you did in you know in 1998. It, it For a guy in Trump who really loves the fight, who loves the clash, who loves seeing his guy in there fighting for him, it's kind of an unusual choice to have made. And in both the cases of Nixon and Clinton's impeachment proceedings, the decision was made that it would be beneficial to the president to have his lawyers involved. So what we're seeing now is the decision that contrasts that. Yeah, they definitely wanted their their legal teams involved. They felt like that was the best way to chip away at the case. Mm-hmm. And in 74, the public was breaking against Nixon slowly but surely. And, and the opinion was 
sharpening against him and calling for his removal. In 1998, that wasn't the case at all. In 98, you know, Clinton had still had really strong support from the public by by around Thanksgiving when his attorneys had this, these great clashes with Ken Starr. But they still thought that they could look at and target some moderate Republicans who were wavering about whether or not to vote yes for impeachment. In this case now, I think Trump and Republicans feel very confident that they will there will not be a single House Republican to vote to for an article of impeachment. And instead, they seem to just think that if they say the entire process was bogus, that the entire process was horrible, that's why we didn't even participate in it, that that will be their strongest defense. I'm not sure of that, but that's what they've basically decided on. Can we just outline the difference between White House lawyers and Trump's lawyers and who in in what capacity would be there as a defense lawyer for Trump? It's very open. It could be people from the White House counsel's office. Mm -hmm. Those are actual taxpayer-funded, you know, government lawyers who are hired to work for the president, but ultimately they are answerable to taxpayers in the federal government. David Kendall was an outside lawyer for Bill Clinton who was hired to basically handle all the various scandals that involved Bill Clinton, starting with his days as Arkansas governor. Some of that stuff came back to haunt him a little bit in the first term, and which led to an independent counsel. So he hired this outside lawyer, David Kendall, to do all of that work for him. To some degree, that's the role that Rudy Giuliani had been playing for President Trump as the outside personal lawyer. There are a couple of other outside lawyers, Jay Sekulow being one, a well-known conservative lawyer for many Christian evangelical groups. Those lawyers are personal lawyers working for Donald Trump. In Rudy Giuliani's case, he's working pro bono. They are not government-funded lawyers, but they – when there's a lot of leeway in impeachment inquiries as to who you send to defend you. In the House Judiciary Committee, Bill Clinton sent David Kendall as sort of his lead cross-examiner. When it came to the Senate trial, Bill Clinton actually did not send Kendall and sent most of his White House counsel's team with a couple of outside advisors. So for now, we know that the White House lawyers will – not participate on Wednesday, and we might hear more from them by Friday. But do we expect things to change if this process moves to the Senate? Are we likely to see Trump's lawyers there? I would. I think they have to because the, their argument so far on process has all been about House Democrats are unfair. House Democrats have wanted to impeach Trump since the you know, very first day he was sworn into office, and they're trying to delegitimize the entire process. When it comes over to the Senate for a trial, it's a Republican majority Senate. The procedures of that Senate trial are going to be okayed by Republicans. So I think at that point, their strategy has to shift away from process, process, process to what is your best line of defense over here. And you can't say the process is illegitimate when the person overseeing it is Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate majority leader. So I think at that point, you will see 
a much more fully engaged Trump legal team. Up until this point, we've been speaking specifically about Trump's lawyers' participation. Do we have any indication that Trump himself might participate in some of these proceedings? No, I don't think it it, it would be unusual. Democrats would welcome it, probably. There was a moment in the uh, Intelligence Committee a couple of weeks ago where Jim Jordan was complaining about how we're not able to call the one witness who started it all, referring to the whistleblower. And Peter Welch, the Democrat from Vermont, quickly interjected and said, oh, OK, we'll we'll call the person who started it all. President Trump is welcome to come here, sit down and explain everything. I don't think you'll see Trump providing any direct testimony. In 1998, Bill Clinton and his team did submit. They were given 81 questions from the House Judiciary Committee, and they took uh, the entire Thanksgiving break and gave thousands of words in in answers to all 81 questions. And, you know, I think it to double check this, I believe it was all written in sort of you know first person as if it was Clinton himself answering. So there are ways for presidents to participate. I just so far we haven't seen it from Trump himself. Okay, so then to summarize this, and can he do that fashion? Can <laughs> the president and his legal team effectively not participate in his impeachment proceedings? Yeah, they they could choose to do so. They they definitely can not do that, but. Ultimately, I still think that Donald Trump is a guy who loves the fight. He loves the clash. And I think he will want to see his own people out there fighting for him in committee rooms, on the Senate floor and on TV, of course. I want to ask you about another thing going on in the news this week. President Trump has traveled abroad to NATO and I'm curious if it's unusual for a president under inquiry by Congress to go abroad, represent the United States abroad while while he's being investigated at home. Um, No, you know, there was and you look back at, at Nixon, you know, Nixon goes to China. A lot of that happened, you know, after the Watergate break in. And, you know, Bill Clinton definitely looked at foreign policy as his way to be very presidential during the investigation. He testified before the Ken Starr grand jury in mid-August 1998 and then went on what was supposed to be about a two-week vacation up in Massachusetts, I think, to Martha's Vineyard. And then in the middle of it, flew home to Washington. There were There was panic and rumors of, oh my gosh, he's flying home to resign. And instead, he was flying home to announce a you know, a military strike against Iraq. And so presidents have used foreign policy often to sort of look presidential in these moments uh, where they're getting sort of hit back home for, you know, domestic issues. Speaking of domestic issues, we're here in the Capitol building. So as we look ahead to Tuesday's report and Wednesday's hearings, what key piece of this are you looking out for this week? I think it's whether or not Democrats can find any more new evidence between now and roughly two weeks from now as they head into the full vote of the full House on the expected timeline. Are there more things that they uncover? Does somebody else come forward? Their intelligence committee hearings went very well for them, and they had multiple witnesses who 
came forward and said, also, oh, by the way, since the last time we talked, I've discovered this other thing that, that I previously didn't know about. Is there anything more that they can come up with, especially related to the last days before the Ukraine security aid was released? All right. Well, we will stay tuned to see what happens. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Anytime. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry in one place, including the latest from Can He Do That? Post reports and the Daily 202's Big Idea. Updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the unmatched Carol Alderman with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. Contributions to Post Helping Hand go directly to services run by beneficiaries Bright Beginnings and Street Village and So Others Might Eat that provide shelter, food, education, and other services to those less fortunate in the Washington, D.C. region. Learn more at posthelpinghand.com.